0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: We're
2: not dealing with a real threat, we're dealing with an artificial threat. We're dealing with a fake terrorism. 9-11, and most of the terrorism that goes on in this world today, is in fact fake terrorism or contrived terrorism, false terrorism, false flag terrorism and that the war on terror, which is what 9-11 was, was meant to start, is equally a fraud. The war on terror and the terrorism that we see happening around us is all part of a basically a big theater operation, a big psyops. And so when we understand that, we can disabuse ourselves of this notion that we're, we're fighting a war against Islam and, and the whole Arab world, what have you. No, we're, we're being duped. We're being deceived on a day-to-day basis.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, Architects of Terror. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. Upon graduation from high school in Cook County, Illinois, he spent the next three years traveling extensively throughout Europe and the Middle East, finally settling in both the kibbutz in Israel and in Norway, where he studied Egyptian, biblical hebrew and norwegian at the university of oslo he is a graduate of the university of california in history with an emphasis on israel palestine along with research and writing he has worked as an editor and translator His travels and studies of German, Spanish, Norwegian, Swedish, Hebrew, and Arabic languages have helped him analyze international politics and events. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, and Solving 9-11, The Articles. Christopher Bolin, welcome again. Thank you. Nice to be with you. In solving 9-11, the deception that changed the world, you have a chapter entitled, The Architecture of Terror, Mapping the Network Behind 9-11. This chapter includes a dizzying array of connected companies and people, both in and out of government, that were in positions to facilitate and orchestrate the events of September 11th. You met with Andreas von Bulow, the former head of the parliamentary commission that oversaw the financing of the German intelligence agencies. What did von Bülow have to say about what he termed as a, quote, sophisticated false flag operation like 9-11?
2: Well, uh, the first thing he told me was, uh, this was in November or early December 2001 in Germany. He told me that, uh, first of all, he suspected that Israel, Israeli intelligence was behind the uh, 9-11 atrocity. And then he said that um, such a sophisticated operation, a false flag operation, would, would involve three different levels. The first level, he said, was the architectural level. This is the people who planned the false flag crime in order to have it blamed on a third party. In this case, you know, the Arab Muslims uh, fanatics of, of Osama bin Laden. And, and the purpose of their uh, false flag terrorism is to basically change public opinion. Uh, in this case, change U.S. public opinion to support the uh, the war agenda in the Middle East and to support the uh, increased defense spending. The second level, he said, was the managerial level. These are the people who manage the the setting up of the crime and then manage the deception that follows the crime. And they also, this managerial level, uh, control the third level, which is the working level. And for example, he said the working level is part of the deception. Um, in this case, the working level would be, for example, the nineteen Arabs, the alleged hijackers.
0: Did Von Bulow have anything else to say about uh, his opinion of this operation?
2: Yes, well, he was it was surprising that he said uh, quite frankly, that he thought it was an Israeli operation, Israeli intelligence. And uh, I went ahead and reported that in the in the uh, report that I wrote up about our our uh, discussion. And he was surprised because he had said the same thing to uh, German journalists, but uh, as he said, that none of the German journalists would ever uh, publish such a, a statement. But I did, and he was a little bit surprised at that, that, that you know our media or the paper I wrote for would, would go ahead and say such a thing.
0: You write that there is evidence of an Israeli intelligence network connecting every key player and entity behind 9-11. The people and companies and their interrelationships are quite complex. Can you talk about a few of these networks, the people and companies?
2: Yeah, well, there's a like you said, there's a host of them. Um, Ehud Barak, for example, uh, when he lost the election to uh, Ariel Sharon, uh, came over to the United States in the late winter of 2000. And and was working in the United States, uh, you know, for the 10 months or so prior to 9-11. And he worked with a company uh, that was actually produced aluminum nano nanoparticles, nanocomposites, which is one of the key elements of uh, nanothermite. Uh, and then there was, as you said, in that Chapter 7, the architecture of terrorism, there's a whole host of companies, you know, including NICE and... and uh, NICE, that's an Israeli company, and, and others. And as I found, as I demonstrate in this chapter, these Israeli companies are all inter, interrelated, interlinked with, uh, for example, the, the scores of, of, of Israeli art students who were spying on and trying to set their stuff up in, in DEA offices across this country. These companies and these relationships were actually investigated, after I wrote the chapter, Um, By a by an English editor and a fact checker and he he examined 105 statements that I made in that chapter and found that all of them were correct and This was a person in England who was actually uh, Hostile to my thesis that this was an Israeli operation But he was hired by a a publisher in Europe to check the facts of of that chapter That you, you referred to the architecture of terrorism and found that all of my connections all of my statements were in fact true
0: Yes, that chapter is very complex. It was hard for me to hold it uh, in my mind all at once because there's so many interconnections and, and, and a huge cast of characters. Um, now, you mentioned the art students. This is a very important point. You go into that in some detail in your book. What can you tell us about these art students? Who, who do we think they might have been? Well, that's
2: that's a, a, a really interesting. These art students were, were Israelis who, who pretended to be uh, art students. And actually, though, I think it was the DEA had done a, a, a working paper, an analysis of these students who had been arrested and who had been caught, and, uh, and found that they were actually um, Israeli military personnel active who had served in or were members of, uh demolition units. Uh many of them, like there was a pair Segelovitz, I think his name was, who was one of the heads of this one of the heads of these teams. And he had led a, a platoon or a, a a group of like 80 uh, other soldiers and their specialty was in fact uh demolition. And and these people were the ones who were uh you know found trying to infiltrate into DEA offices, drug enforcement agency offices and, and private homes of, of agents of the DEA across the United States. Um, and this, this when this information came out, this was also part of the Carl uh, Cameron four-part series on Fox News uh, that came out just after 9-11. But there's a tie-in. These, these individuals in this uh, Israeli art student spying operation uh, were connected to uh, Israeli companies that were, you know, um, also tied into the 9/11. As you said, it's very complex. It's a what I've done is I've created a, a flowchart sort of thing where I, I I have mapped out these entities and show the relationships between them. And and what what Israeli intelligence has done for a long time actually in this country in the United States is that they what they do is they set up um, a company in Israel. Uh, the research and development of the company is done in Israel, and they then they create the headquarters or business office for that company in menlo park california or silicon valley or boston or what have you and so it, it has the appearances from the outside of being an american company when in fact it is an israeli intelligence operation 100 percent
0: now you just said that these uh israeli art students so-called at least some of them were arrested what were they arrested for
2: well they were they were arrested and 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 caught um, when they were very aggressively trying to uh, get into or, or they're harassing uh, DEA offices um, and DEA, DEA personnel at their private residences. And so the, um, the DEA document lists the names, sometimes the spelling isn't quite correct, of uh, these, these agents as they were caught, as they were observed, Um, trying to basically infiltrate uh, DEA offices across the country. And this was going on in, in, I think it was in Texas, in California, and a lot in Florida. Most of the activity was actually being done in Florida, right around the area where these uh, 19 alleged hijackers lived.
0: Well, now, do you have any opinion as to why they would be trying to infiltrate the Hmm. DEA? I mean, now there is... (laughs) evidence that these 19 or how many ever, uh, accused hijackers that were living in Florida were actually dealing drugs. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, that could very well be. And the thing is, is that what we also know about the, the, the alleged hijackers, the 19 Arab alleged hijackers is that many of them had been issued duplicate licenses. And when you read the details, you find that, uh, you know, for example, one of the Arab hijackers would get the license on a Wednesday. And the very next day, a call would come into the DMV, what have you, the, the the people who issue licenses in Florida, requesting a duplicate license issued and with the excuse that the person had moved to a new residence and had a new address. So what you have is you have basically uh, two IDs for the same person in circulation at the same time. And this is, this is an indication that, And many of these people uh, had also reported having lost their passports. So what this indicates is that uh, there were two people going around with the same ID, uh, leaving basically a a false trail in the name of the person who was to be implicated in the crime. So that's a a Mossad operation uh, tactic that's been used for a long time. And it's very well described in the book by John Le Carré. He wrote a book in 1982 called The Little Drummer Girl. And it's about an Israeli, a similar Israeli terror operation in Europe. Um, George Roy Hill made a film about it. But the book explains how this is done, how a false trail is left um, to implicate a person in a crime. And that's what we have. That's, that's apparently what we had with, the, with, the, with these 19 alleged hijackers. Somebody was leaving a trail in their name to implicate them in the crime. And as you say, why would the Israelis be interested in, in infiltrating and, and getting into DEA offices? Probably because they were trying to do uh, intelligence gathering on the DEA, and what I what I what I see is that the the Clintons and the Bush families have been involved in this uh, drug operation that began back in the nineteen eighties. You know, in between the Medellin cartel and the Israelis were involved in this. So um, having having access to the DEA offices and, and the information would give them the the power especially with this computer enterprise software, to know what is going on in the DEA at any given time in real time. That's what they probably wanted.
0: And how would that information have benefited them?
2: Well, the thing is, is that, um, as I point out in the chapter of the planes of 9-11, the second chapter of the book, Solving 9-11, the Israeli Aircraft Industries, IAI, um, has long had a base in Bogota, Colombia, and I I believe, and I think the evidence is pretty clear, that the Israelis have been involved in this drug operation from Colombia to the United States, along with the Bush family and the Clinton family, and and nothing ties people more closely together than a crime committed together, and I think that the crime here is this uh, that they they basically took over the the Medellin drug cartel operations. And this is, this is, I think, why Philip Marshall was killed in Calaveras County a, a year or so ago, because he had written a book called Lakefront Airport. And he, he writes about his experiences. It's, a, it's an autobiographical novel in which he writes about his experiences being the personal pilot, the Learjet pilot for Barry Seal, And Barry Seal was, of course, the, the uh, drug smuggler who turned to be a DEA informant, and 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 this is what this is the crime where these families are connected. The operation the the you know was being run out of the White House, out of the basement of the White House, by Papa Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, and Bill Clinton was of course the governor in Arkansas when Barry Seal was flying all this massive amounts of cocaine into Arkansas. And and what and what the problem is is for them is that is that this pilot. Philip Marshall knew the names, knew the places, knew the operation, and had written a book about it. And he was, in, he was planning to write a, a fourth book. But the third book, Lake, Lakefront Airport, is very hard to get. Right now, if you want to buy it on Amazon, it costs about $600. But I just read it, and you can see very clearly that it's his inside knowledge of this drug operation, weapons and drug operation called you know, you know the Iran-Contra thing, that, that that's what put his life in danger because he knew the names and he knew what was going on. The reason I think he was killed was because he had inside information, first-hand information about the drug smuggling operation that involved the Clintons, the Bushes, and the Israelis. That's why he was a danger to the system.
0: I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, Architects of Terror. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You mentioned uh, The Little Drummer Girl. You write that John le Carré's 1983 novel, The Little Drummer Girl, is about Israeli false flag operations and that in the preface to his book, John le Carré thanked past and serving officers of Israeli intelligence. I believe The Little Drummer Girl was also made into a movie. Yes, you mentioned this. What is the storyline of The Little Drummer Girl and what do you think is its significance?
2: Yeah, John le Carré uh, signed the uh, foreword to that book or the preface in, I think it was July 1982. Um, and that's exactly the time when the Israelis were invading Lebanon in 1982 under Ariel Sharon and Menachem Begin. Um, but as he says in the very beginning, uh, he thanks and he names these people. He names the, uh, the former head of Israeli military intelligence for basically, you know, giving him all this uh, information and insight about how Israeli intelligence operations work in Europe. And in this book, and in the movie, I think it's Diane Keaton plays the role, she's an actress from England, and she's basically recruited by the Mossad to help uh, entrap a Palestinian. And she goes down to uh, Turkey or Greece and hooks up with this Palestinian guy, and they have sort of a relationship, a a romance. But the whole purpose of the book is to... um, Implicate this Palestinian in in terrorism that he, you know, that he's not actually involved in. And um, in the movie, you, you you know, some of the scenes in the movie involve like uh, Israelis blowing up a synagogue, but it's not really. Uh, they're not really blowing up the synagogue. They're putting charges in the window and blowing the windows out. It's all it's all theatrics. And and that's one of the key statements in the book by one of the Mossadniks. He says that terror is theater. Theater's a contract. Do you know what that means? trick, You've been deceived. And and that's very important, you know, to, to understand how the Israeli military intelligence goes about implicating and setting up a crime like this so that the so that the authorities that do the investigation following the crime come away believing and thinking and and having in their hands evidence. That implicates, you know, Arabs or terrorists or whatever Palestinians, when in fact the whole thing has been basically theater, basically theater, and that's what we're seeing now, and much more in the United States. We're seeing these these incidents like, you know, San Bernardino and and uh, Boston Boston Marathon. We're seeing uh, terrorist attacks or terrorist incidents where clearly the public can see that we're being deceived. You know, it, it it's really the theater aspect of these crimes of these terrorist attacks is becoming very evident so it's like the game is up you know these people are are still doing these terrorist attacks they're still doing them on a daily basis in iraq and syria and a- afghanistan but when they when they do these kinds of crimes in this country the public has woken up to the fact that that we are being deceived and and that's a that's a really good thing
0: there was ultimately An unsuccessful attempt to obtain the security contract for the New York Port Authority back in 1987. Who Mm -hmm. obtained the security contract, and how did they lose it?
2: That's a very interesting aspect of this crime. Um, A couple Mossadniks, these are high-level Mossad agents. Um, Svi Malkin is one of them, and the other one is Avram Shalom Bendor. These two men were very high-level Mossad agents working under Isser Harel, the first um, chief of the Mossad, and the first chief of the Shin Bet. Basically, this is Israeli domestic intelligence and foreign intelligence. And Iser Harel, he he employed terrorism in his uh, in his uh, operations, and that's one reason why he was forced to resign from the Mossad um, in one thousand nine hundred sixty-three because he was involved in a in an assassination uh, tactic of killing German scientists called Operation Damocles, which was being run by Yitzhak Shamir. But the thing is, is that these two men, um, Zvi Malkin and Avram Shalom Bendor, came to the United States in the 1980s. And they, they these men had been involved in uh, high level Mossad operations, like the kidnapping of, um, is it Adolf Eichmann, down in Argentina. The, the former Nazi who was kidnapped, taken to Israel, you know, tried and hanged. And they were also involved in the, in the illegal uh, procurement of plutonium in this country and shipping it to Israel for its nuclear arsenal. So they were very high-level Mossad players, and they came to this country in the 80s. And in 1987, they actually obtained the security contract for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which was the, the body that owned the World Trade Center. And this is the agency that oversees the the ports and the harbors and the airports and the bridges and tunnels of New York City and New Jersey. Uh, They obtained the security contract for the World Trade Center and the Port Authority. And this this crime of 9-11 probably would have occurred in the late 80s or early 90s had not a person at the Port Authority discovered that Avraham Shalom ben Dor was convicted of a, a murder in Israel and was using a false name. And this is the person who was the president of the security company that got the Port Authority contract. It was called Atwell Security of Tel Aviv. And it was actually a company that was uh, set up by the big Mossad guy, Shaul Eisenberg, basically Mr. Asia for Israel. And when when the Port Authority discovered that Avraham Shalom Ben-Dor was using a fake name and was wanted or was, was convicted of murder in Israel as the former chief of the, of the Shin Bet, they tore up the contract. And as I said, had they not torn up the contract, 9-11 would have probably occurred in the late 80s or early 90s. But it was discovered. The contract was torn up. And, but that wasn't the end of the operation. What they then did is Avraham Shalom Bendor went to work for Jules Kroll. And Jules Kroll and, and, and Maurice Greenberg, they had a company together called Kroll Associates. And Kroll Associates got the security contract for the World Trade Center after the bombing in 1993. So, you see, using, using the offices of this, of this American, Jules Kroll, the Mossad still got into the security contract for the World Trade Center, but it took them until 1993 to do
0: so. Well, then, what company or companies held the security contract for the World Trade Center on September 11th?
2: Well, it was Kroll Associates. Kroll Associates, headed by Jules Kroll and his son, and then involving Maurice Greenberg and his son, they had the Kroll Associates, uh, they were given, they were given the, uh, the duty to rewrite procedures, security procedures for the World Trade Center. And they did so. This is after the bombing in 1993. And uh, the bombing of the, in 1993 bombing in the basement was basically an FBI sting operation. And uh, it was investigated for the city of New York, for the Robert Morgenthau, the DA of New York. It was investigated by a guy named uh, Cherkosky. I think his name is Michael Cherkosky. And he was the head of investigations for New York City uh, and for Robert Morgenthau. And, and then the following year, Mr. Cherkoski went to work for Kroll Associates when they became the, uh, uh, the agent, the group, the organization that was in charge of security for the World Trade Center. And the Port Authority took all of their recommendations and put them into effect. And this group, Kroll Associates, then had the security contract for the World Trade Center and oversaw security for the World Trade Center all the way through to the destruction in 2001.
0: Could you explain the relationship of Kroll Associates with Marsh and McLennan? Who are Mm -hmm. the people involved in these companies?
2: Well, it's exactly, it's Jules Kroll and his business partner, Maurice Greenberg, also known as Hank Greenberg, who was the former CEO of AIG. The company that got the you know the, the lion's share of the 180 billion dollar bailout in 2008 and 2009, these two men have have several companies together, and one of them is Marsh McLennan, and Marsh McLennan is the uh, is the company into whose computer room the first plane struck. The very first plane went right into Marsh McLennan's secure computer center, which was in the North Tower, and Kroll Associates. And, and Maurice Greenberg, they have, they have several companies together. Maurice Greenberg has a whole bunch of, you know, operations with Jules Kroll. And their sons are also involved, Jules Kroll's son and Maurice Greenberg's son. Um, Maurice Greenberg's son, for example, was the CEO of uh, Marsh McLennan when the first plane struck their computer room. And this is very important because both planes actually struck secure computer rooms. And both computer rooms seem to have been prepared with, uh, thermite charges and things like that so that the explosion was, uh, you know, spectacular and, uh, pyrotechnical. But those are the people, those two characters, you know, Greenberg and Kroll, they're very important because Kroll associates also involve people like, um, Jerome Hauer. Jerome Hauer had been a Kroll associate. And he was the guy in, in San Diego who came on and and said, you know, basically that this was the 9/11 was done by Osama bin Laden, and the towers fell because of the you know burning fuel. Another one was uh, Paul Bremer, who was the the first uh, head of the Coalition Provisional Authority. I think it was called the CPA in Iraq. He was basically America's proconsul to run the occupation of Iraq for the first three or four years, during which time. You know, there was no metering of the oil that was being exported from Iraq. All of these characters are, are at the highest level of the Iraqi invasion, invasion of Iraq, and, and 9-11. I mean, even Jerome Hauer, who was a Kroll Associates employee, was the person who put the Office of Emergency Management hardened bunker on the 23rd floor of building number seven. You know, the building that fell down at 520 in the afternoon. So, I mean, these people are all connected this small group of players are very deeply connected in the the crimes of 9-11 and the atrocity that what happened on 9-11 and then the war in Iraq.
0: Do you think the high-tech enterprise architecture company P-TECH was mm-hmm. compromised? You write that their enterprise software was used to provide real-time access and control of all data and information on government computer networks on September 11th.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, this is also part of Indira Singh's um, contribution to 9-11 understanding. Yeah, P-Tech, P-TECH was more than compromised. P-TECH was basically an Israeli operation. And it was uh, enterprise software based in Quincy, Massachusetts. And it was what I call like a false front uh, operation in which people were led to believe that it was a, a, a Lebanese Muslim who had set up the company. And that this company had been sponsored by some dodgy Saudi guy who has some ties to terrorism. This is all part of the deception. In fact, the person who was playing the key role in the establishment of the company from the beginning in 1994 and and getting its software, its enterprise software, onto U.S. military and government computers was a man named Michael Goff, a, a Jewish guy from Worcester, Massachusetts, who was a lawyer. And Michael Goff, what what he did is that he I spoke to him and I asked him how he wound up working for, for P Tech. And he said that he had he had left his law practice in Worcester Mass. He was working for a good company out there. And he left that law firm and went to work through an agency for P-TECH, which was a little startup company in 1994. And I asked him, Well, what agency was that? What agency, you know, was was responsible for your going? He he couldn't remember. So I think he was not telling me the truth here, and what's interesting is that Michael Goff went on to work for the Mossad company, Guardium, which is another computer software company, uh, Guardium with an M at the end, and that's that's a very clearly Israeli intelligence operation. So he, you know, he's working on on one hand for Israeli intelligence, and on the other hand, he's working for P Tech, this dodgy little Arab startup company in Quincy, Mass. Whose software finds itself onto all the computers in the United States government military? Well, you know, I I, I think I think I pinned the tail on the donkey when I say that PTEC was was an Israeli intelligence uh, front operation all along, and this is how this is how you do spying in the big big picture. When you have enterprise software running on U.S. government computers, you know what's going on in the operation in the computer network. Whichever, whichever agency you're talking about, you have, you have absolute control, surveillance operability, and control operability throughout the operation in real time. That is, that is intelligence gathering at the highest level.
0: I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, Architects of Terror. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 9-11 whistleblower Indira Singh said that P-TECH was with MITRE Corporation in the basement of the FAA for two years prior to nine eleven. What do we know about MITRE Corporation?
1: Well,
2: uh, MITRE Corporation is, uh, is based out of MIT originally, and it's part of Lincoln Labs, which is a company that does um, all of the... Uh, you know, the engineering, software engineering, and, and and things like that for the U.S. Air Force. MITRE Corporation is a very big defense contractor. It's based outside Boston. And these two companies were involved, as she said, in the basement of the FAA, checking for and examining the relationship between the FAA and the military in the event of a crisis like 9-11. I've written a great deal about MITRE and P-TECH and, and the people involved in this. And again, there's this uh, very um, strong Zionist influence in MITRE, um, the former CEO and the people that ran it. James Schlesinger was in there. Uh, Rodney Schlesinger, I think, is, might be. But in any case, this, this whole operation was, was basically being done to prepare the understanding and, and the, put the, to put the super users in charge of how the communication would flow from the FAA to the military when 9-11 occurred. And this is a very important part of the computer aspect of the crime, because as we now know, the, there was a drill going on that day, and the air traffic controllers were completely befuddled and didn't understand what was real and what was false that day. But also, the communications between the FAA and the military were thwarted and delayed, so that there was no proper, effective military response to the hijackings. And this is, this is not by accident. This is, this is done by, by a very intelligent foe who has infiltrated the most important and sensitive computer networks involved in defense of this country. And, and that's where we have a very serious problem. You know, that, that the Israelis, Israeli military intelligence has infiltrated the computer networks of the U.S. government and military so that they have this super user access. To these 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 uh, computer networks, and and it, it went on even in, in later on the NSA itself uh, took encryption software from an Israeli company, and I called up the NSA and I said, I mean, how is it that that the NSA you're the you're you know you're the signal intelligence the United States of America, and you you give your encryption software you know responsibility over to a foreign country? They had no problem with that. They said, but I mean that just gives you an idea of how. How infiltrated our computer networks are, and it's the same thing what we found out later when with this uh, uh, revelations by Snowden and I think it was Assange, but, but the Snowden revelations revealed that in San Francisco the the companies that were involved, I think one was called prism and another one was called Naros. these two companies that were involved in the in the splitting of the rays and sending the data in real time directly to Israel were both Israeli companies. So what we find is that you know at the highest level and the computer Networks in this country, um, military and government, they're completely infiltrated and controlled by um, Israeli intelligence. Even the cyber, even even the cybersecurity czar for the Pentagon, was a guy named Amit Yoran, and and he's an Israeli, and and he and his brother, you know, ran these, this network of hackers, friendly hackers, whatnot. But these are the people who wrote the security protocols for the Pentagon. For their security, for the security software, and he was the he was the cyber czar for the United States of America, and he's an Israeli citizen. You know, this is how bad it is.
0: What is the SITE Intelligence Group? Who runs it, and what do they do? That's S I T E.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's very important. SITE Intelligence Group is a Israeli intelligence website operation based in Bethesda, Maryland. And the, the front person for this organization is, a, is an Israeli intelligence agent named Rita Katz, K-A-T-Z. And she uh, works out of Bethesda, Maryland. And what this group does is it provides the uh, video, video feed coming from, for example, ISIS. One of their main clients or main, main subjects is this Islamic State group in Syria and Iraq. So when, when we see videos, coming uh, from this, supposedly coming from this ISIS group, what is coming to us through this Israeli intelligence website called SITE Intelligence Group. And and so what what it basically means is that our understanding of this Islamic threat in Syria and Iraq called ISIS is most of the time primarily coming to us through these Israelis. And that's very important to understand. This This is a good example of how U.S. military and U.S. media View the Middle East through Israeli spectacles because they are the ones who are providing us with the so-called intelligence, the propaganda, the videos, what have you. And so it's very much like the wag the dog you know, theme of the movie in which, in which videos are being provided to us from an Israeli website supposedly portraying this latest threat to you know, peace in the Middle East. And that's, that's, that's very important to understand because um, when, for example, the second video or the video of the second American being beheaded came to, uh, you know, CNN and, and Fox News, it came from SITE, And SITE admitted on CNN that they had actually released, SITE Intelligence Group had released the video before ISIS had, had released the video. And as Rita Kotz said on CNN, well, this is because we had a copy of the video beforehand. Well, how did Israeli intelligence have a copy of the video beforehand, before ISIS had actually released the video, unless they're inside the camera? This this gives you an idea of how close Israeli intelligence is to this ISIS operation.
0: Let's talk about Hollywood and the movies. You write about several very important films, including The Medusa Touch of 1978, JFK, the cult classic Brazil as well mm-hmm. as the television pilot for The Lone Gunman. Mm-hmm. What makes these films significant and who produced them? Yeah, they're
2: very important. Um, most of them are Israeli-produced films made by Arnon Milchan, or Arnan Milchan. And he's one of the big media moguls in, in Hollywood. He's an Israeli guy. He's a very high-level Israeli intelligence agent who has been involved in smuggling of uh, equipment and nuclear triggers and, and things of that nature for Israel's nuclear arsenal. And in doing that, he was he was their chief agent in a, in an Israeli operation called Lakam L A K A M, which was basically the operation to procure the essential elements needed for Israel's nuclear arsenal, and this was being run by Shimon Peres, of course, the, the godfather of Israel's nuclear arsenal. Their main agent was Arnon Milchan in Hollywood. So he was busted. For example, he was his operation was busted in 1985. For having smuggled something like 850 nuclear triggers for nuclear bombs to Israel, but when the when the operation was discovered, um, the triggers had already been sent to Israel. The only people who actually were busted or being sought by FBI were the American underlings. Arnon Milshan was not named in the in the investigation, although he was the one who ran the whole operation. Well, in in 1978, before he even got involved in that in that. Smuggling operation for the triggers. He had made a movie in 1978 called *The Medusa Touch*, his first movie. And in this movie, it was a, a English-French production. Uh, a Boeing 747. The climactic scene is a Boeing 747 flying into the Pan Am building, or a high-rise that looks like the Pan Am building. And and then later, he made in the year 2000. He with his partner uh, Rupert Murdoch, they had a company called New Regency Films or New Regency Television, and they made a movie called *The Pilot Episode of the Lone Gunman*. In which uh, a passenger aircraft was hijacked remotely and flown into the World Trade Center and and what this is 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 ideation this is putting the idea out there in the public domain that um, people are trying to hijack planes and fly them into the World Trade Center and and he was obviously aware of this plot in 1978 when he made the movie he was very close to the you know the head of Israeli intelligence and the head of Israeli um, military, a Weitzman. So it's like his ideas, his themes of his movies didn't just come out of thin air. He's working from an understanding of what the, the plots are that are in the making.
0: And what about the cult classic Brazil? He was also the mm-hmm. producer of that, wasn't he?
2: Yes. That was the film that was written by, I think, Terry Gilliam, uh, the American guy involved in the, the comedy series on TV. It was a big comedy series. And Terry, Terry Gilliam wrote the, wrote the script for this, this movie. And, and what's interesting, it came out in like 1985. And in the movie, it's a futuristic, a grim futuristic piece about life in the future in which terrorism occurs on a daily basis all around these people. And for example, they'll be at a restaurant and a bomb will go off and the waiters come out and bring up a screen, set up the screen. And the background of the, of the whole theme, I think Robert De Niro plays the key role the the background is that the society is at war with the terrorists there's a, there's this ongoing war against terrorism and the terrorists occasionally put bombs off you know here and there and it it's like terrorism became a way of life and the war on terror was the war that these people were involved in it's 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 uncanny because it's it's so close to what we now see happening in Iraq and Afghanistan you know these two countries that were the first battlefields of the war on terror and and these two countries now 14 years after the beginning of the war on terror now have more terrorism and more deaths due to terrorism than any time in their history it's worse now in the last year in both those countries than it's ever been so you can see that the war on terrorism has been extremely expensive and extremely counterproductive because rather than eliminating terrorism, it has increased terrorism like 10 times. And so last year in Afghanistan, there was a record number of people killed due to terrorism and likewise in, in Iraq.
0: Uh, Now this Arnon Milchan was also the producer of the film JFK. Isn't that right?
2: That's right. That's right. And, and in that film, of course, um, the, the viewer comes away thinking that there's this nebulous group in the, in the U.S. CIA that's responsible for the death of of president. And it's a good film. It's made by Oliver Stone. But um, there is, of course, no discussion or no presentation of, of any of the Israeli involvement in the uh, murder of John F. Kennedy. For example, you know we know now, thanks to Leah Rabin, who wrote a memoir after the death of her husband, that her husband, Yitzhak Rabin, was in Dallas on, on, on November 22nd, 1963. And uh, she said that, you know, it was just, by, was just a coincidence, she said. But also, as soon as he went back to Israel in December of that year, 1963, he was made uh, chief of staff. So whatever he did in Dallas apparently was rewarded um, with the highest position in the Israeli military.
0: I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, Architects of Terror. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Who was the head of Israeli intelligence that predicted in 1980 that Arab terrorists would attack the tallest building in New York City? What can you tell us about this prediction?
2: Oh, that's very interesting. That's Isar Harel. That was the founding chief of the Mossad and of the Shin Bet, Israeli domestic and foreign intelligence. And Isar Harel was the one who, as I said, was uh, removed from his position at Mossad in 1963 because of his operation to kill German scientists who had been working with um, Egypt. And um, in that in that operation, uh, Yitzhak Shamir was the main guy running the operation, the murder operation. But Harel was interviewed by a guy named Michael Evans. I think his name is Michael Evans, and this is a a Jewish guy from Texas who has a, a Christian evangelist, a Christian Zionist outfit called Jerusalem Prayer Team. I think it's called. Well, in any case, this guy, this Michael Evans, has very close connections to the extreme right wing in Israel, the Likud Party, Menachem Begin, and the head of the former head of the Mossad. And in 1980, he reported this. You know later. In 1980, he was having dinner with Issa Harel, the former head of the Mossad, and he asked him, do you think terrorism will ever come to the United States, and if so, where? And Issa Harel told him, yes, I think it will, and they will, they will attack your tallest building in New York City, and they'll attack the tallest building because that's a symbol of your power and your fertility and all that kind of stuff. And he said that that's what they'll do. And lo and behold, you know, 21 years later, that came true. And, and, and this prediction was made in 1979 and, again, in 1980. This is when it was reported by Michael Evans. So clearly the, the plotting, the planning, the Israeli planning for the 9-11 terror attacks went into high gear in the late 1970s. And this is exactly the time, 1977, when the, when the Likud coalition came to power in Israel. And the Likud coalition is very important to understand. This is the coalition of the former heads of the terrorist outfits in Palestine, Israel, um, from the 1930s and 40s. This is Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Shamir, Ariel Sharon. This is the most radical, ruthless, and and extremist elements of the Zionist movement. This is basically the the Jabotinsky Zionists, um, and, and, and they involve the Netanyahu family and the Begin family. And the Shamir family, these, these are really, really extreme people. And that's not appreciated by people in America because Americans basically don't have um, the understanding or the historical understanding of, of Zionism and the different elements of Zionism.
0: Now, these uh, terrorist groups that you're mentioning would have been what, Irgun and also the Stern group?
2: Yeah, there was the two of the biggest ones were the Irgun. That was under Menachem Begin and the Stern gang or Lehi. And that was under Yitzhak Shamir. And the heads of these two groups came together, as I said, in 1973, formed the Likud Coalition, and then they came to power in 1977. And they have basically been in power ever since. At certain times, they've had to share power with the other parties, but they have, they have prevailed. They have been the most powerful ruling uh, party in Israeli politics since the late 1970s. And that's very important to understand because these are the people who have always used terrorism as their modus operandi.
0: You had a quote from Menachem Begin, actually. Somebody asked him about being the biggest terrorist in the Middle East. What Mm -hmm. did he say? Yeah,
2: that's interesting. There was in 1974. I think that it was a British journalist named Russell Howe. And he was asked, how does it feel in light of all that's going on in 1974 uh, to be considered the father of terrorism in the Middle East? And Begin... uh, kind of chuckled and said in the middle east in all the world and so he was taking upon himself the mantle of being the father of terrorism in all the world and you know the truth be known that's not a far cry from the truth the israelis are the ones who have made terrorism you know what it is today and and they have played a key role in a great deal of it you know and and what we've seen in in iraq for example that uh some of these terrorists, when you when you unwrap their turbans and and uh, find their identities, that they're not they're not Iraqi or Afghani at all. They're in some cases, you know, Israeli or British intelligence agents, and that's very important to understand because then we're we're not dealing with we're not dealing with a real threat. We're dealing with an artificial threat. We're dealing with a fake terrorism, and that's what's really important to understand is to understand that 9/11 and most of the terrorism that goes on in this world today is, in fact, uh, fake terrorism or contrived terrorism, false terrorism, false flag terrorism, and that the war on terror, which is what 9-11 was was meant to start, is equally a fraud. So that we're living in deceived times and that the, the war on terror and the terrorism that we see happening around us is all part of a basically a big theater operation, a big psyops. And so when we understand that, we we can disabuse ourselves of this notion that we're we're fighting a war against Islam and and the whole Arab world, what have you. No, we're we're being duped. We're being deceived on a day to day basis, and the sooner we understand that, the the quicker we'll we'll pull ourselves out of this uh, Zionist war agenda that is destructive of of this country and and much of the world. You know, it's interesting that the the war on terrorism was first articulated in the late 1970s. Again, the late 1970s by Netanyahu himself at the at the Jerusalem Conference in 1979 of the Netanyahu Institute. And Netanyahu had been an employee of the Rothschild in the years prior to this conference. And at the conference, George Herbert Walker Bush, you know, spoke and spoke in support of this idea. But the Israeli idea was to get the United States into the Middle East on a war footing to fight the um, terror groups, what you would call these... Uh, resistance groups who were opposed to Israeli occupation and hegemony in the region. So that's where we find ourselves now. We are now camped out in the Middle East on a permanent basis, fighting an Israeli, a Zionist war agenda uh, for them. So there is really no American interest whatsoever. We've been completely tricked into a, a fraudulent war.
0: Israelis in the Twin Towers were forewarned about the attacks of September 11th. Isn't that right?
2: Oh, yes, they were. But what happened is that there was an um, Israeli instant messaging service called Odigo. And this company had their corporate offices uh, two blocks from the World Trade Center. And their research and development, the operations, was being done in Herzliya, Israel. You know, this is the typical of these Israeli companies I was telling you about. And a couple hours before 9-11, before the first plane struck at, what, 845, a couple hours before that, there was a warning message that went out on this Odigo instant messaging system. And if you were, if you were an Odigo subscriber, you would get the message through your uh, Blackberry or your internet or your email, whatever platform you used, you would get this, this message. And the message said that there would be something disastrous happening at the World Trade Center. And as the vice president of the company later said, um, the the warning was precise to the minute. So this, in conjunction with the fact that something like 4,000 Israelis were expected to have been in the area of the World Trade Center or the Pentagon on 9-11, and that of these 4,000, basically four people, four Israelis perished, indicates to me that uh, most of the people that uh, – Got the Odego message. Stayed away.
0: In his run for the Republican nomination, Donald Trump has cited an instance of Arab nationals, or maybe he said Muslims, seen celebrating in New York City as the World Trade Center towers exploded. Who, in fact, were these celebrants?
2: Yeah, this is a very odd thing because he's he's putting again. Uh, Arabs. He's blaming Arabs for something that turned out to be Israelis. There were, there were indeed five Middle Eastern men who had been seen celebrating the attack on the World Trade Center and clicking their lighters and giving high fives on the Jersey side of, of the river there. But um, this was reported by Ted Koppel at about noon on 9-11. And he said they were Middle Eastern men. But these five Middle Eastern men turned out to be Israeli agents. So they were the Kurtzberg brothers and then three other operatives. And these men were, were arrested by New Jersey police in the afternoon on 9-11. And they were found to have been carrying box cutters and uh, thousands of dollars stuck in their socks and, and things like that. And their, their van tested positive for explosives. Um, but when it, it was then turned over to the FBI. And these men were held in detention in Brooklyn for about two months. And then they went back to Israel. And they appeared on the Yair Lapid show. And in that show, the three, the three operatives admitted that, that they had been on a mission, and the purpose of their mission was to document the event. And all, all five of these characters were affiliated with uh, connected with a company called Urban Moving Systems in Weehawken, New Jersey, which we now know was an Israeli Mossad front company uh, to look like a, a moving company, but it was basically there to set up the, uh, uh, the 9-11 operation.
0: In your powerful two-hour presentation at the Presidio Library in San Francisco, you had a slide of the September 11th Memorial at Ground Zero in New York City. There was a design contest for this memorial. Whose design won?
2: Yeah, it's very interesting that the the, the memorial with the pools and the, and the falling water was designed by an, uh, an Israeli man named Michael Arad. And Michael Arad is the son of Moshe Arad. And Moshe Arad was the former Israeli ambassador to the United States. And uh, this the Arad family is very close to the Netanyahu's. So what, what's interesting is that um, the legacy, uh, both the museum and the memorial, were designed by uh, an Israeli designer who is connected to, uh, basically, the, the godfather of the war on terror, Netanyahu, is Michael Arad. A-R-A-D.
0: One thing I didn't realize until you pointed it out is that Larry Silverstein and Benjamin Netanyahu have a very Mm -hmm. close friendship. I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and Larry Silverstein had a weekly conversation on the telephone every Sunday afternoon for years prior to 9-11. So that means that the Netanyahu, who is basically the godfather of the war on terror, spoke every Sunday afternoon with Larry Silverstein, who was basically the godfather of the 9-11 destruction. I mean, all three towers that fell that day belonged to Larry Silverstein. And, you know, these two men, wherever they were in the world, every Sunday afternoon, they would have a uh, discussion on, on the telephone. And this was reported by uh, uh, an Israeli reporter And this was published in November 2001 in the Israeli media. That's very interesting because what were they talking about? You know, these men were having this weekly conversation. And obviously, you know, these two men are the key players in the war on terror and 9-11. And it's interesting to note that Larry Silverstein basically was the recipient of the World Trade Center in, in late July, July 24th, I think it was, 2001, in which these Public buildings, these publicly owned buildings, became his private property, at least to the extent that he was able to insure them against an act of terrorism. So, when these publicly owned buildings became private property and he insured them, he then became the recipient of something like $7.5 billion when they were destroyed.
0: Christopher Boleyn, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure being with you.
0: been speaking with Christopher Boleyn. Today's show has been Architects of Terror. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. He has lived and traveled extensively throughout the world, including the Middle East, where he studied the region's history and languages before earning a degree in history from the University of California, with an emphasis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. He is the author of *Solving 9/11: The Deception That Changed the World* and *Solving 9/11: The Articles*. Visit his website at bolyn.com. That's b-o-l-l-y-n.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at g Radio.
1: Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of the own. For with a spirit sniper, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what inside yourself, for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me, you got me,